All right, guys, welcome to Revive School. Here we are. We're, we're, we're starting a new study on 2 Samuel. Now think about this. We've been studying through the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now we just finished 1 Samuel. Crazy to think about 2 Samuel. Now, as we've gone through this teaching of 1 Samuel, you feel like we should just start rolling into 2 Samuel with like without any hesitation. But the reality is, is that they build on each other. And, and according to the old days, when I say the old days, originally this book was one book. First and 2 Samuel was one book. It was considered one book. So it's a little weird in the English context that we're breaking it up. But since we are breaking it up because there's 66 books, we kind of need to treat this as, yes, it's building on 1 Samuel, but it, it's its own book as well. Now think about this. Uh, the author was probably Samuel, but we really, we really don't know. So there's a couple of theories, and we've talked about this before in First Samuel. Go to First Chronicles 29:29. 29, 29. Uh, there's a couple options of of who wrote this. Uh, maybe it says, look, this in First Chronicles 29:29. 29, 29, as for the events of King David's reign, from beginning to end, here it is. Note that they are written in the events of Samuel the seer, the events of Nathan the prophet, and the events of Gad the seer. So, so maybe. The combination of these three guys actually put it together. It could be. We don't, still, we don't know, but at least they named it after Samuel. Now, from 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Samuel, we're talking about 135 years, okay, between both books, okay? Some would say then this second portion could be between 38 to 40 years, okay? I always get in trouble whenever I start saying dates because you look at one guy, you look at another guy. So the point is, overall, both Samuels, <laughs> just kidding, First and Second Samuel, you have 135 years. Now, what I love about what Paul Van Gordon said, Gorder, and we, we referenced this last time, but I think this is really important, is, is he describes this, these books as a book of transition. You know, think about this. You went from Moses to Saul, and now you're going into to David. And think about this. You're going from priests to prophets to kings. So it just seems like First and Second Samuel is this period of, of transition. Now, in First Samuel, our, our phrase was, and I love this, was anointed one. Now, look at this. Like, it's like I have a massive wall behind me now. And so when you combine two paintings together, anybody know what it's called? Rich, what is, what is this called? It's if, a diptych. It's a diptych. No, we did not swear. And no, we didn't make this up. A diptych is, you ready for this? It is a piece of art created in two parts. Typically, the two panels are closely related to one another, though it may also be the same piece that is continued on a separate panel. Traditionally, diptychs were hinged like books that could be folded. And in modern art, I love what Mindy wrote here, it is common for artists to create two separate panels designed to be hung next to one another. So it's beautiful when you think about here in 1 Samuel, you have the anointed one. And this anointed one, when you combine the second one, the second one then is eternal throne. The anointed one is going to be walking into and embracing, you ready for this? The eternal throne. Think about, let's go back to 1 Samuel 2.10, Kevin, if we can. Think about the mother Hannah, right? The mother Hannah is going to have a child named Samuel. 
Samuel is, it's, it, she has prophesied that her son is what? He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. So the anointed one is going to walk into the eternal throne. And I, I love this picture because when I think about all of my time at Dallas Seminary, and I think about all of my papers, it's crazy. There's one that always just stands out. And I, I couldn't even tell you what I wrote about it. I just remember 2 Samuel 7. And I just remember the Davidic covenant. How all of the, the, the 2 Samuel 7 points to the eternal king, the eternal throne comes through the lineage of King David. Again, just if you're new to Revive School, just to give you a little bit of a backdrop, you know, we're going to do an introduction of 2 Samuel. So it's going to be a little bit longer on the introduction and not as much into 2 Samuel 1. But as we begin to flow through this, this is just setting the tone for literally the entire, uh, the entire book. And so in 2 Samuel 7, 11, in the second part, it says, The Lord himself will make a house. Scripture says, the Lord will make a house for you. In verse 12, it says, When your time comes and your rest with your fathers, I'll raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. And then if you want to just jump to verse 16, well, you can, you can go to verse 13. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then it goes into verse 16 and then verse 16 just reiterates what we just said. He says, verse 16, Kevin, if you would, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So when you think about the anointed one, now I want you to think about how these fit together. The anointed one is going to actually walk out our phrase, which is the eternal throne. David gets to embrace and experience really the unfolding of the eternal throne. Man, and there's so many texts here, you guys, that really begins to explain this, this process. But I, I just want to, I want to paint that picture for you, okay, of this of this theme. So one of the themes that you're going to see in Second Samuel, okay, is, and we've already alluded to, uh, alluded to it, is the Davidic covenant, okay? And that again, the Davidic covenant, I'm going to get into a whole lot more of that when we get into Second Samuel 5 and then Second Samuel 7, okay? Uh, but in Second Samuel 7, it unfolds the Davidic house, the throne, the kingdom, uh, the promise, and the perpetuity. So like the for, for, forever, it's going to happen forever. And so that is one of the themes, now, one of the other themes, and I, as I was praying through and processing, like, what do I want to camp out now? I, I, want, I don't want us to miss this. Another one of the themes is Jerusalem. It's kind of an interesting thought behind this. You see, David, what we're going to see in 2 Samuel 5, okay, and I'm going to have our teachers that are going to get into this week. They're going to unpack this. But I just want to make sure you guys understand, this is when David actually moves in, into Jerusalem. He captures it, and he makes it the capital of, of the kingdom. And as to me, there, there's, there's a lot here. Would you go to 2 Samuel 5, uh, 6 through 10? Again, I'm not going to teach on this, but I just want to make sure you guys understand. Like, here we have now, this is the reference. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. And the Jebusites, what did they say? You'll never get in here. Even the blind and, and the lame can repel you. <laughs> That's interesting mockery. David can't get in here. So they're just thinking, there's no way. And then look what happens in verse 7 and continues on. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. Again, there's more to this teaching, but I want you to see as one of the themes is that the Davidic covenant is now going to be walked out and the city of Jerusalem is being established. I mean, it is really the most important true statement spot on the entire globe. Can you go to Psalm 48, Kevin, 1 and 2? 
Psalm 48, 1 and 2. The Lord is great and highly praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Verse 2, rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. So Jerusalem's the joy of the whole earth. It's the city of God. Mount Zion is on the slopes of the north in the city. It's the city of the great king. Okay, uh, if you want to go to the city of David. So here's what you have. This is what David, uh, the city of David would have established in his time frame, okay? So now Jerusalem is also known at this point as the city of David. It's super confusing because you're like, is it Salem? Is it the Jerusalem? Is it, what is it? The city of David, okay, was really the first city uh, that David, is, it became his. Okay, it's obviously the Lord's city. Now watch this. Here you have the Kidron Valley, okay? And back here is what you're going to see is the Temple Mount down the road. So Rich, if you go to the bigger picture here, Okay, so here would be what we just looked at, all right? This would be the city of David, okay? Here you have the Kidron Valley. This is the Mount of Olives over here. And then this is the Temple Mount that we were just talking about. And this is, mo- is modern-day Jerusalem now. So when you think of the city of David, look how small it is. Look, when you think of the city of Jerusalem, look how small it is when David first took over the Jebusites. But then, now you'll see as you go there today, it's a whole lot more. I don't know. Rich, when you see this, anything else stand out to you that I just, I think it's a cool picture here. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, you definitely see God's hand of favor and how it just grows and how the territory um, just, God's favor expands. I mean, it's still his holy city, even to this day. So in Second Samuel, okay, one of the themes is the Davidic covenant is established, the eternal throne, and so is the city of Jerusalem. Because you're always kind of like, hey, when did this start? What does this look like? It started in 2 Samuel. Now, there's another theme in here that i got to make sure everybody understands. And I want you to keep it, on, uh, keep it on this picture, will you? Another theme is the sin and its consequences. So here you have the anointed one, who's the lineage of Christ, right? The, the coming Messiah. And because here on the city of David, and this is kind of a, a cool picture. Imagine if you're up here on the hill a little bit. And you can do this today. You can see how close, and it, it actually seems a lot closer. You could stand here and see on the top of rooftops. Is that right, Rich? Yeah. You can see so clearly on top of houses. Imagine David looking on Bathsheba, who's taking a bath. It's totally possible. So in Second Samuel, you're going to see an anointed one radically fall into sin and the consequences. But here's what I love about this story. It doesn't end like Saul did. This is my last theme here, and then we're going to unpack... Second uh, Samuel, it's, there's a future hope. Second Samuel 23, verse 5. Here you have the hope concept. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established an everlasting covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? This came after the fall of Bathsheba. And look at David's, look at David's words. Here you have in Saul, what's Saul doing at the end of 1 Samuel? He's crying out for a medium and he's barely making it. And then it's prophesied his sons are going to die, which they do. And then so does he. So anyway, this is a theme of 2 Samuel. Hopefully this paints an incredible picture. We're going to walk through more of this uh, down the road as we go through our teachings. But I have to just, I have to commend Mindy. This is an absolute incredible painting, paintings, but it, it feels like it's one now. And so if you would join me in 2 Samuel verse... One. Uh, and if you guys listen to just the audio version, I'd really encourage you to go to reviveschool.org and you can actually see the paintings. If you become a, a, a regular student, you can actually see each one of these paintings. Now, in verse one, it says, after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. Remember, uh, Kyle Felke taught on this a couple days ago in 1 Samuel 30. So the death took place of the Amalekites. And then look where he stayed. Ziklag. 
two days. So, Kevin, do you remember what was so important about Ziklag from the very beginning? Uh, it was the place that the Philistines give him to live. Yeah, so when David was running from Saul, he's like, hey, can I have this city? So God used that. And now, look, he's, he's using it again. But after the death of Saul, David, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. In verse 2, it says, on the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head, he came from Saul's camp. So this would automatically imply he was um, not with, uh, not on David's side. Okay, he would have been an enemy. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, he was probably a, a lone survivor. Now, there's a couple things. You know, not only was he tired from the battle, not only was he tired from just the weather conditions, but man, he had to walk 90, 90 miles. And so, if you would, we're going to go, yeah, here you go. Thanks, guys. Look at this. From Mount Gil- Gilboa, where the battle was, right? Do you remember this? All the way, all the way down here. That's a long time. So he shows up on the third day. This man shows up. In verse 3, David says, hey, where have you come from? He replied, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Okay, so now we have a, uh, a guy who is broken free. And it says, David says, well, what was the outcome? Tell me what happened in the battle. And, and David asked him, and he said, the troops fled the battle. He answered, many of the troops have fallen and are dead. And also Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. And in verse 5, David asked the young man who brought him the report, how, how do you know, like what you just said is a, a really big deal. You just said the anointed king of Israel, Saul, is dead. And, and my best friend, Jonathan, you just told me they're dead. How do you know this? And in verse 6, this young man says, I happen to be, right, on Mount Gilboa. And he said, there was Saul, and it says that he was leaning on a spear, leaning on his spear, and at that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. Keep going to verse 7 if you can. Okay, and the scripture just says, when he turned around and he saw me, he called out to me, and he said, uh, he called out to me, and so I answered, I'm at your service. And he asked, who are you? And he says, I am an Amalekite. And then he begged me, stand over me. So he's saying, Saul, the king, said, Stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. I, that word lingers actually implies that I'm still in, I'm in an agony of death. Kevin, what do you think is weird so far about this story? It's a little different than the stories told in 1 Samuel 31. Let's go there if we can. Go to 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 3. It is a different story. Uh, I'm actually, there's a lot of people that say he's radically off. I, I want to... I want to go with something here for a second. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from there. Many were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Okay, keep going. Verse 3. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers caught up with him and severely wounded him. So at this point, from a battle standpoint, some of the archers shot him, right? That's, that's pretty clear. Okay, now let's go to verses 4 through 6. Again, we're doing this in comparison to 2 Samuel, an Amalekite story of how Saul died. And these are the stories that people that don't like the Bible love. They're like, ah, look, contradiction here. We don't don't like this story. It's got to be wrong. Saul said to his armor bearer, okay, at that moment, draw your sword and run run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it because he was terrified, rightfully so. Good call, by the way. Then Saul took his sword and then he fell on it, okay? I just want to throw out something, okay? It says the Amalekite said when he saw him, he was leaning on his, on a, on a spear, right? In some sense, this verse right here doesn't really radically contradict that. Would you guys agree? 
This could be a tangible. Verse 5. Okay, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. Okay, so the armor bearer, he then killed himself, right? So now watch this in verse 6. So then on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. So there could have been, can you go back to verse 4? Look, this could be a stretch, and I'm willing to go there with it just because of this story. Somewhere in this, when he fell on it, and by the time he died, it could have been an Amalekite actually did something because his armor bearer wouldn't do it. Does that make sense? Like if Saul's leaning on it, right here it doesn't say he died. Correct? So we don't know if that's what killed him, or if you go to verse 5, if you go to verse 5, it says, when the armor bearer saw that was dead, again, do you remember the Gospels? And how when you have Matthew looking at one perspective and then you have Mark looking at another perspective and John looking at another perspective, it doesn't mean because information is left out, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. That's all I want to just say is that his story could actually come in and fit. I can't prove that. And I'm willing not to go to my deathbed over this one. I'm just saying there's a possibility. So when the Amalekite is telling David, hey, I just want to let you know. So Kevin, if you'll go back there. And he said, hey, he called out to me. He said, I'm at your service. He said, stand over me and kill me. I'm mortally wounded. My life still is, I'm in agony. It could be. So I stood over and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. So here's what he did. The scripture says this Amalekite took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm because there's, there's even proof in 1 Kings 22 that royal uh, royalty would actually wear their, and I'm always going to mess up this word, regalia, their, their royal outfit. People wore their royal outfits into the battle. And so he could have had it on his head. He could have had it on his arm. And he said, I, I brought them here to my Lord. Then David, he took a hold of the clothes, his clothes, tore them, and all of the men that were with him did the same. They mourned, they wept, they fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword. And this is why they were mourning. This is why they're weeping. This is why they're fasting. Saul, his son, Jonathan, the Lord's people and the house of Israel. Like you guys, people were radically um, distraught, not just over Saul and his sons, but all of the people that died. You know what this says to me about David? He's a man of integrity. How many times could David, at least that we know of, at least two times could have killed Saul? Is that correct? Even though David was the anointed one, and even though he was going to receive the eternal throne, he knew he couldn't force the issue at hand. He knew that he wasn't going to be the one that had to kill him. And so strangely enough, even though his own enemy wanted to kill him, he still loved him. And in verse 13, David wasn't done. He inquired of the young man who had brought the report. Hey, let's clarify. Where are you from? Well, I'm the son of a foreigner. He said, I'm, I'm an Amalekite. And then David questioned him. How is it that you are not afraid? And I love this to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Weren't you at all concerned that your hand was going to be the final blow to God's anointed? Like, didn't this and shouldn't this bother you? Because you have to understand, God had a special relationship with Saul. Saul was Israel's first ever king. David, in so many ways, in so many times, could have killed the anointed, but he didn't. David chose to not kill him. Why? Because he respected the anointed. He respected the position. He respected what, what it was started. And so here's what David did in verse 15. Totally didn't expect this coming. Like if you're just ho-humming along and reading this for your emotional devotionals by the lake and a little bird flies by and oh, this is a great morning and hey, look, the servant brought the crown and the armband. David summoned one of his servants over here. 
Come here and kill him. What? The guy just brought Saul's crown. He just brought his armband. And David says, done. This guy's dead. And the servant struck him and he, and he died. It makes you really think twice about telling stories. <laughs> For David, in verse 16, he had, say, he had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. It bothered, do you remember this? It bothered David when he held on to a piece of robe from Saul that he cut. It bothered his conscience so much. I can't even fathom then how he was feeling about this young Amalekite who said, hey, look what I did. I, I, I finished him off. And so here's what, here's what David did. And this is what David does well. David sang a following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan. In fact, he loved this song and this lament so much, he required and he ordered in verse 18 uh, the Judahites to be taught the song, the song of the bow. So he even gave it a, a name. So, you know, probably number one hits in the charts of Israel. Uh, you know, what I love is Nelson says this was very highly poetic. It's intensely personal and it's emotionally charged. Why? Why the song of the bow? Because it's a national tragedy. When the king dies, everybody should mourn. Everybody should fast. Everybody should weep. But you see, what happens in Israel is they understand that there is such an anointing on this nation. And I'm even going to say now for David, there's an open heaven that God pours out his blessings. That they realize this is special. And so he writes a eulogy. And it goes from verses 19, literally all the way to verses 27. So it, it, I don't know if you want to call it three stanzas, three choruses. But what you see in verses 19 through 24 is the first one. Okay. And so let me just write this up here. So in the song of lament, also called the song of bow, you have the first one and it's verses 19 through 24. And here you have, it's pretty special, the splendor of Israel, okay? We're talking about the splendor. We're talking about Saul and Jonathan. Lies slain on your heights, Mount Gilboa, how the mighty have fallen. You're going to hear that three times in this song. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplace of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. He doesn't want the, the enemy cities to rejoice in the king of Israel's death. Even though it's his own enemy, please, please, please don't rejoice. And we don't want the daughters of the uncircumcised to gloat. In verse 21, you know, he, he wants there to be a curse on the mountains of Gilboa. Let no dew or rain be on your fields of offering. Why? Because this is where he fell. An example would be in 9-11 in New York City. You know, we have a memorial right there. But, you know, in this context, Saul would be like, or David would be like cursed to that city because of that's what happened to this place where so many people died and were killed in our nation. Does that make sense? And so like this is a national tragedy. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. And this is a really powerful picture. The shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. You know, the, the, the shields back then, they would have had to have been polished with oil. that had been rubbed with oil. that had been cleansed and it led to protection. No longer is there oil on the shield. The anointing is gone. Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never re uh, uh, returned unstained for the blood of the slain from the bodies of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan, and look at this. He even says they loved and there's delightful. You know what that means? It means Jonathan still loved his dad, even though Saul hated David. 
And they were not parted in life or in death. They were swifter. Look at these compliments. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel weep for Saul. And so in other words, I don't want my enemies to gloat, but I want my daughters of Israel to weep. I want you to understand this is a tragedy. There is a transition in our country who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. And then scripture continues how, how the mighty have fallen. Jonathan and, and, and uh, Saul in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your hearts. And then here, and so in verse, the second reference that you see here is in verse 25. And then really how David breaks it up is in verses 26 and 27. This really is how they would categorize the song of the bow. And he says in verse 26, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, and you were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. I'm just going to tell you now. Somebody always will take this as a homosexual reference. This is not. This is a covenant established relationship. He says, I've got your back. You got my back. Don't twist the word of God to support. You ready for this? Your ungodly lifestyle. And in verse 27, he wraps it up. How mighty have the, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And then he says, that's the end of second Samuel one. But here's just real briefly. I want to cover four verses in 2 Samuel 2 because I think this is really important, okay? So this is the theme of all of the book. This is a song that you see. But then what you're going to see in 2 Samuel 2, really 1 through 4, are you ready for this? It's David's time. It is David's time. Scripture says, Sometime later, sometime later David inquired of the Lord. Should I go to one of the towns of Judah? I, I have to just tell you guys, this is Kiriath Arba, okay? Kiriath Arba actually means the town of four. You remember how we talked about is there suburbs in the area? The towns of four actually references like little suburbs around that area. I think it's just kind of crazy. So he, he asked, where should I go? Where should I go? I want to inquire of you. Where should I go? And he says, to Hebron. Hebron is like the key city that God has moved amongst the patriarchs of Abraham. I want to seek the will of God. Where should I go? He says, go 20 miles south of Jerusalem where you've established uh, what you're going to see, establishment of beachhead. And so David went there with his two wives, Anahonoam, and then it says Abigail. And then it says in verse 3, In addition, David brought the men who were with him, each one with his household, and they settled in the towns near Hebron. That's what we're talking about right there, you guys, in the towns of Hebron. And here's where it gets crazy. In verse 4, it says, Then men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now this is the second anointing. The first anointing was when the Samuel the prophet then poured and, uh, and released the anointing onto David. This is the second one. Now, we've talked about this. The second one now is with the house of Judah. Okay, The third one that will be coming will be in 2 Samuel 5, verse 3, when all of Israel will see him in the anointing. There's going to be three anointings. One was personal with his family. The second one was with, with Judah. That's the one we're talking about right now. So he's now beginning. Kevin, if you'll go back there for me in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 2. Look at this. They anointed David king over the house of Judah. This is the first time, you guys. This is a big moment. And it came after David honoring and recognizing the first king of Israel, Saul. He didn't rejoice. He didn't celebrate. In fact, he had the servant from Amalekite killed because he wanted people to realize, I had no part in the death of the first king. And so now here, over the house of Judah, he has been anointed. And it was told it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And so to me, here you see this anointing. And I, I think there's a lot to, to reference here, but can I just tell you one thing? David knows what it means to wait on him. Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. 
and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. Does this not describe David's life? He waited on the Lord. And in God's timing, not man's timing, it all unfolded. Uh, go to Psalm 21.7, will you please? Psalm 21.7 says this. Look at this picture. Now that he's been anointed, you guys, here's the challenge for David. Here's the encouragement for David. For the king relies on the Lord. He's been anointed the house of Judah through the faithful love of the Most High. He is not shaken. When you rely on the Lord, David's eternal throne will not be shaken. All right, guys, that's been 2 Samuel 1 and 2. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.